Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys today. We're gonna be in Psalm 7 this morning if you turn there in your Bibles. Uh, If I haven't met you before, um, I'm Pastor Nate. I've been missing in action for the last few weeks. I've been out of town with my family up in Lake Tahoe. It was our 14th year uh, going to Lake Tahoe together as a family in the summer, and uh, we just had a blessed time, super relaxed time, really refreshed, and uh, I think for me, one of the things that really stood out to me was just the privilege that I have of being able to share Uh, the Word of God with God's people. This is not a TED Talk that I'm about to give. Uh, This is the opening up of God's book, where God, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, decided to speak to us. And we get to open it up, read it, think about it, and, and my hope is to unleash it so that you can understand it and apply it into your life to a greater degree. So, It's a privilege to be back and get back into the pulpit, back into the Word. So today we're in uh, Psalm 7, and you kind of just got to bear with me a little bit. I'm a little rusty, haven't done this for three Sundays, and uh, actually today was the first day that I haven't worn board shorts in the last three weeks, so like putting pants on was just a real weird experience today. (laughs) So I'm going to give it my best shot uh, this morning for you. But let's pray, and uh, this is going to be one of those teachings where instead of Uh, reading the whole text in advance. We'll read through it as we go. And just kind of to give you a little prompt for how this teaching is going to go, hang on until the end. Really, there's a prayer at the beginning, a lot of stuff in the middle, and then the real conclusion at the very end kind of is the message. So let's pray together and ask God for help. Lord, we come to you today studying this psalm, Psalm 7, thinking about this prayer, this plea, this cry of a man who was accused of something. And uh, Lord, we can in some ways relate, maybe not to the exact same degree of what David was going through, but Lord, we've been wrongfully accused before. People have looked into our motives. Even our own hearts have accused us at times wrongfully. And so Lord, we come to you today and we pray that you'd help us. Help us to land where he landed, not only if we're accused right now, but also just generally that we would land where he landed a thousand times a day, that we would get back to the place that he got to. So strengthen us, Lord, by your spirit as we think about your word today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Well, one of the most uh, disorienting experiences in life is to be wrongfully accused. You know, you're not guilty You haven't done the thing that the rumor is saying you've done. Uh, You've not been in the wrong. You've had the right motive. But still the accusation is out there. Still the charge is out there. It can be an incredibly frustrating experience because it's really hard to know what to do. How do I respond to an untrue accusation? Now, in the psalm today, David is in that place. He's disoriented by a perpetual false accusation that's been brought against him by a man named Cush. And we're going to think about that accusation in a moment. But what David will do 
is he's going to land in a very interesting place. And I think it's a place that we should land really at any moment of our lives, but especially when we are wrongfully accused. So what we're going to do today is take this prayer bit by bit, piece by piece, and first start out with the first two verses where we consider uh, David's prayer. So let's read it, starting out with the description that comes before verse one. It describes this psalm as a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a man who was a Benjaminite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. All right, so this psalm uh, begins right away with this prayer, but before the prayer is a description of this psalm. Not every psalm, as you've probably noticed over the last seven weeks, is like this. Not every psalm gives us background material or sort of a status uh, update of what was happening before the song or while the song was being written and originally prayed. Uh, but this little description or superscription tells us that this is a shigion of David. You probably haven't used the word shigion in the last week. It's kind of a mysterious word. It likely means uh, a musical cadence that is aggressive and perhaps even a bit chaotic. So this tells us kind of the mood of this prayer, the mood of this song, at least initially. It's less of a ballad and a little bit more hard rock. It's less Adele, a little more ACDC. It's less aromatherapy and a little more uh, a smash room where you go in and break old TVs and all of that to get out your stress and anger. It's a little bit more like that than uh, the earlier things. But beyond the style of the song, we also learn that it was to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, when you look back into the story of David's life in places like First and Second Samuel, uh, there really isn't anything about this man named Cush. Uh, we don't really know who he was. We don't really know what he said, at least not exactly or precisely. But there are some things that we do know that give us clues as to what might have been happening at this season of David's life. For one, we know that Saul was also from the tribe of Benjamin, just like Cush, and that Saul had surrounded himself with, himself with other Benjaminites who often told Saul that David was out to get him. After David slayed Goliath, he was not yet the king of Israel he would be the king of Israel one day, but Saul was paranoid of David's popularity. He surrounded himself with all these other men who were also from the same tribe who whispered in his ear that David was out to get him. And as the song progresses later in the psalm, we're going to see David allude to an accusation that he's repaid his friend, his friend's kindness with evil, that he's plundered his enemy without cause, and that he pursued his enemy's soul. And probably when that's said in verse four and five, it's a description of something like what Cush was saying about him. 
David, you have pursued Saul, who is your friend. You're trying to destroy his soul, though he's been kind to you. You are uh, returning goodness and kindness and charity with evil and wickedness. So though we can't know with a high degree of certainty exactly who Cush was or what he said, uh, what we can suspect, at least, is that David at this point is young, He's not yet the king in Israel, and he's on the run in the wilderness from the ruling king of Israel, his father-in-law, King Saul. And out in the wilderness, David is desperate. He's tired of running. He's in pain. And like a lion tears apart its prey, he said in verse two, he's concerned that his soul is being torn apart in the same way. You know, he just envisions a ravenous beast ripping apart its prey, and he's saying, that is what's happening to my soul right now through these accusations that are being brought against me. So what David does in the first two verses is he prays his prayer. What he asks God for is deliverance. He wants God to be his place of refuge. And we're gonna learn how God answered that prayer throughout this song. You know, modern backpackers, when they go on long journeys in the backcountry, will often take uh, satellite-connected devices, uh, especially for emergencies. One of them that I saw was kind of nifty. It just basically would hook up to any satellite that was overhead, and you could send one of three preset messages. You couldn't write out a big update, you could just send one of three messages. You could either send a message that said okay, or help, or SOS. So the okay message is meant for at the end of the day, you get to your destination, you send the okay message, and it goes to friends and family in a preset way, and it lets them know, I made it to where I planned on going, I'm doing fine, I'm okay, and they could actually look up your location on the map. Uh, The help message, they would also get it, but they would kind of know, all right, he's in some trouble. He needs a little bit of help. We should call the ranger, perhaps, or some local authority. But just in the next day or two or three, he's going to need some assistance. But SOS goes straight to the authorities, and it means I need help right now. I'm in dire straits. I'm in critical condition. And this prayer, at this moment, is David's SOS cry to God. He's saying, God, these accusations, I've I've borne with them for a season. I've dealt with them for a while, but right now I'm in such pain, I need you to deliver me. I need you to rescue me. Now, this song is really important because a wrongful accusation or a false attack is really difficult to to navigate. It's, It's hard to know how to respond. You know, what do we do? when this comes into our lives, when someone says something about us that is completely untrue? Do we respond with the same method of our accusers? Well, as Christians, we can't do that. We can't return a lie for a lie. We can't return hatred for hatred. Uh, That just brings us down to their level and their sinning. And as a Christian, we want to avoid sin. Uh, Do we openly or even combatively defend ourselves? The the problem with this response is that it often backfires because our vehemence 
often leads others to think that we are guilty of the accusation. And if we're innocent, we don't have the option of repenting, you know, saying to the person, hey, I'm so sorry for the thing that you said that I did that I didn't do, that didn't happen. We don't have the option of repentance because that would be living in a lie. So what can we do? Well, David found the only way. He took his problem to God and he asked God to deliver him. And as I said, at the end, we're going to see how God does this. But after David prayed for deliverance, he then left his request. It just stays right there in verse one and two. That's what I want, God. I want to be delivered. I want you to be my refuge. But then he makes in verse three through five this big claim of personal innocence. Let's read it together. It might even shock you a little bit how far he goes in it. He says, oh Lord, my God, verse three, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then we have one of those psalmic kind of musical, poetic uh, words, the word selah, meaning to pause, let the music play out, kind of contemplate what has just been said. Now, these three verses that we just read together, this is an incredibly honest portion of the song. In this portion, David qualifies his desire for refuge. He qualifies his desire for God's deliverance with a few conditions. He's not just saying to God, God, you know, no matter what, I want you to rescue me. I'm your guy. I want you to rescue me. What he's saying to God is, God, if I've done what Cush has said I've done, I don't want you to rescue me. I want to feel the consequences of my sin. If there's wrong in my hands, he said, if I'm guilty of mistreating my friend Saul, if I've wrongfully plundered my enemy, I want you to let my enemy, defeat me. Basically, he's saying, God, if I'm guilty, I want to lose this time. I want to lose this one. It's a very honest and vulnerable prayer. Now, some of us, in reading that prayer in verse 3 through 5, we might have a little bit of a difficult time because we know that David was not entirely innocent in the way that he's describing. We know the doctrine of human depravity. Every human being on the face of the earth has the stain of sin and is guilty before God. We as Christians understand this doctrine. We agree with Paul the Apostle when he said in Romans chapter three that there is none righteous, no, not one. So when David comes along and he says, God, my hands are clean, I've done nothing wrong, we kind of have, we're a little suspicious to what he's saying. We have our doubts. And our suspicions might even be aroused further by his staunch denial of guilt. You know, we have sayings, I don't agree with them, but we have sayings like, where there's smoke, there's fire. Or to quote Shakespeare, he doth protest too much. And what we mean by these statements is that all the smoke of denial and all the protestation against the charge might make us think that David's guilty. He's, he's barking because he's the dog that's been hit. He, he knows that this is true. But it's not true. This is a highly specific prayer that David is praying. 
David was not saying to God that he was personally pure in all his ways before God. He was not saying that he was a man who never succumbed to temptation. He wasn't even saying to God, God, I'm incapable of doing the things that Cush has said I've done. No, all he's saying is that he knows that he did not commit the crime that Cush said he committed this time. He's like, God, I know in this case, I haven't done it. In this instance, he knew he was innocent. And as I said earlier, it can be one of the most disorienting experiences of life to be wrongfully accused when you know that you're innocent. To know that you've done nothing deserving of the ire of your accuser. It's jarring, it's dispiriting. But what I want you to see is that there was an underlying attitude that David has here in this second movement of his song. He's saying, God, I'm innocent. And the implication is, God, I'm going to remain innocent. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands here in this moment. There's things I might want to do to retaliate against Cush, but I've been innocent to this point and I'm going to remain innocent. It was kind of a commitment to integrity that David was making before God. So David prayed at the beginning of this song for deliverance. He clung to his innocence and his integrity in the next part of the song, but the next portion of the song shows us what David was hoping for. Now, I have to warn you that you might not be able to easily or quickly relate to what David was hoping for. What he was hoping for was for God to judge not just his enemy, but himself. So let's read of it in verse six through 11. He says, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Okay, in this third movement of the song, David describes God in a very specific way. He asks God to get up in verse six like a warrior that's going out into battle. He appeals in verse six to God's anger and God's fury. He wants God in verse eight and nine to judge his opponents and put an end to all the evil of the wicked. And he concludes this portion of his prayer by saying that God will do these things because he knows that God, verse 11, is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. What David was hoping for here was for God's judgment and not, as I mentioned already, exclusively the judgment of his opponents. In verse eight, right in the center of his prayer for justice or judgment, he says, judge me, O Lord. <laughs> who prays like that? Who comes to God and says, God, I want you to deal with me too? Does David, is he the kind of guy that enjoys performance reviews because he likes being judged? Is that David? 
Well, to help us understand David's prayer, I think what we have to consider are the two different forms of judgment that the Old and New Testament present. Uh, C.S. Lewis weighed in on this in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. And in his book, he distinguished two types of judgment or justice. Ultimate or heavenly justice is one. Well, limited or earthly justice is the second. Now, as Christians, what we generally think about when we think about judgment is we think of the great day of judgment in the future. That's the first kind of justice or judgment. It's the ultimate judgment, the ultimate justice. When Christ returns and he sets everything that is wrong right and every person gives an account of their lives and those covered by the blood, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what we often think of when we think of judgment. And we're right for thinking of it in that way. That's a very New Testament way of thinking of the judgment or the justice of God. But in the Old Testament, Jewish believers often thought about the other form of judgment or justice. Justice for people who were living in obedience to God right now, today. You know, as Christians, we might even have a little bit of worry or concern or paranoia or misunderstanding about the version of justice that we think about, you know, like, man, I'm, I wish I had a little more time to kind of get things better, more dialed in. I want to be able to stand before the Lord and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of the Lord. We might even have a little bit of fright in us about giving an account for the way that we spent our lives. And I'm not here to comment about that at this moment in time, but uh, the Jewish mentality didn't have any kind of fright about God's judgment. It was constantly invited. What they wanted and saw and desired was for God's earthly justice to occur today. And though David's words likely point to God's ultimate judgment in the last days, he was surely and mostly thinking about justice for himself on that day. There's a huge difference between these two types of judgment. And one an assessment is made about someone's overall righteousness, while in the other, an assessment is made about a specific incident. Perhaps an illustration will help us understand what I'm talking about today. Imagine two brothers, little boys, playing, and they begin fighting over the same toy. Not hard to imagine at all, is it? And both of them say, that toy is mine. Well, a good parent isn't going to walk into the room and say, well, Johnny is generally a better little boy than Jack, so I decree that the toy must belong to Johnny. No, Johnny, no matter how good he is, he's still just a little boy, and he could have had a bad moment, and he could have stolen the toy from Jack. The parent isn't there in that moment to assess overall righteousness, but he's there, the parent is there to assess a specific incident of unrighteousness. And that's what David is asking for. God, I want you to deal with this specific incident. I want you to bring justice into this situation. He wants God to judge him, and he wants God to judge his adversaries. He's urgent in his request. So this should be instructive, I think, for us today. We should want both, as Christians, forms of God's judgment. 
the final judgment of all evil, but his judgment today as well. Okay, but after hoping for that judgment, David then continues in his prayer and he states this long conviction about what's gonna happen to Cush. It's basically a conviction about the foolishness of evil. Like this guy, it's not gonna work out for him because God isn't going to let it work out. So let's see what David said in verse 12 through 16. He said, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. All right, this is David just kind of declaring the facts of the matter. He's just basically saying, look, unless Cush repents, he's gonna have to deal with God. God will fight against him. God will go to war with him. Unless he repents, David says, he's going to experience God's deadly weapons. It's gonna be like the man who digs a pit, he says, and they would do this sometimes to try to catch an animal, catch prey, and instead of catching prey, he falls into the very pit that he has Doug, David envisioned Cush's words backfiring against him as his mischief returned upon his own head. Uh, this is very Proverbs-like, if you've ever spent any time reading the book of Proverbs. You know, kind of a what you do will come back to you kind of mentality. Proverbs 26, 27 even says this, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Kind of the idea is you're trying to create trouble. You're going to actually be negatively affected by the trouble that you create. And we all know people who are living in this kind of thing, that, that overly dramatic kind of trouble-causing person that kind of feed off of it. Well, what comes back into their lives? Trouble, difficulty, isolation, of people leaving them because of the way that they behaved. And according to David, Cush's way, it's the way of folly. It just doesn't pay. In the long run, it hurts. It all comes back on you. It just won't work out. And God has designed human life to be lived in that way. I don't know if you've ever just kind of sat and watched a spider building its web. A spider is never entangled in the web that it is creating or building. A spider is made for it, but then a fly or another bug climbs into or flies into the web and they get entangled. They're stuck in it because they're not made for it. And the person who persists in evil is not made for it. He'll eventually feel its consequences, be trapped in its web. But what David wants us to know is that this process, it's not an inevitable one. He said, if a man does not repent. What that means is that there's the possibility of repentance. There's the possibility of changing course, an acknowledgement of guilt and a commitment to turn from it, to follow God can release someone from the web of these consequences. 
And some of you might hear the word repent, and it's a very churchy kind of word to you, maybe a legalistic or stiff kind of word to you. But the word repent is a gospel word because it gives us hope that God will make a way for the guilty to come back to him. And the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us how that's possible. Jesus came to live the life that we could never live. He died in our place upon his cross and he rose from the dead so that everyone who trusts in him would be made just in God's eyes. We would, through agreement with him, we would be made just. We would escape the snare of sin. As Tim Keller often says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And since it's the acceptance of Jesus's message that enables us to escape the snare or the consequence ultimately of sin, then it will that freedom will only happen when we agree with his message, when we agree with what he says about our sins. So repentance is a vital form of entry into this gospel message. It's a word of hope for those who are without God. All right, now I've told you that at the very end, this is where the message really happens. Uh, David, at this point, all through verse 16 He's uttered his prayer for deliverance. He's made his commitment to integrity, kind of professed his innocence. He's declared his hope for God's judgment. He's expressed his convictions about Cush's folly. But now he's ready to end his prayer. And his conclusion is a decision, and I think it's a decision that all of us should make today. He said in verse 17, to end this prayer, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. One fascinating element to David's decision here is that nothing has changed in his circumstances. During the course of the prayer, there wasn't even time for anything to change. Cush couldn't stop speaking. Saul couldn't stop doing what he was doing. And the parallel narratives of First and Second Samuel tell us that Saul's advisors made accusations like these until the day that Saul died. So this never stopped until Saul stopped. But in prayer, David made a vital turn. He shifted from a need for justice right now to celebratory praise over God and his nature. In a sense, David's prayer time did what prayer often does. It counseled him to worship God more and better than before. Uh, one biblical counselor who wrote a theological handbook on biblical counseling said that the job of counselors, biblical counselors, is to work themselves out of a job by restoring worship in the hearts of the hurting. And David's prayer time did exactly that. It did what a good biblical counselor is supposed to do. It pointed him to a deeper appreciation of God, which resulted in thanksgiving 
and praise. In the spiritual classic, Assembling Together, uh, Watchman Nee wrote this. He said, why is praise also triumph? Because when you pray, you are still in the environment. But when you praise, you've risen above the environment. Whenever you are praying and pleading, you are involved in the thing you ask for. The more you plead, the more you are bound by that thing for it's before you, in front of you all the time. But if you are brought by God beyond the prison, beyond the stocks, beyond the shame and suffering, then you are able to raise your voice and sing praise to the name of God. And that was what was happening to David. As I said, Cush was the same at the end of the prayer as he was at the beginning. Saul was the same at the end of the prayer as he was at the beginning, but David was not the same. He would not be imprisoned by their wickedness. What they were doing to him would not bind him. He was free because he would praise God. And this praise, by the way, is the very deliverance that David prayed for in verse one and two. He opened the psalm just to remind you by praying in verse one, God save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Now, if you knew his situation, you might think that, oh, what he means by that is some kind of military victory, some kind of respite where he gets to come back to Jerusalem, the drama is over, but David did not receive that answer to his prayers, but he did receive what he requested. Because now at the end of his prayer, he is delivered. God is his refuge. Though nothing has changed technically, everything has changed internally. And I believe that this praise is the very deliverance that we need as well, probably dozens of times every single day. When injustice or unrighteousness abounds, it can have an imprisoning effect on your soul. Soon all you can see is evil. And I've, I've seen people whose lives, they're, they're practical, everyday, minute by minute, hour by hour lives and experiences are barely touched at all by the tumult and upside down mor- morality of our time, but who are bound and imprisoned unable to have any joy because the evil has consumed their vision. Praise is the thing that can deliver us. And Christians always have a reason to praise because we always have the cross of Christ, amen? We always have the beauty of the great exchange that Martin Luther spoke of, that the God-man exchanged himself for us on the cross, trading out our sin for his righteousness. Because Christ submitted himself and substituted himself for us on the cross, because he's the savior who loves a broken world and sends us into it as missionaries, we always have a reason to praise. And when we praise what this song shows us, we are delivered. So let us be a people who get our eyes more and more upon the Lord, because as we praise him, we are set free. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.